All right, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? Today I'm going to talk about searching in the pandemic. And I'm going to mix some metaphors here. That's a writing violation, but I'm going to do it anyway. So the pandemic opened a gap in time. It was like a two-year layover where the plane was grounded so that we could hop off and sit quietly in the concourse and read the map and adjust our itineraries. For some, the opening of this gap in time caused the vacuum to fill with old habits, often bad habits. For others, a reprioritization of life occurred, but the order of those priorities varied dramatically between people. Politics, technology, porn, drinking, and material possessions seemed to take the top place for many. Liquor store shopping sprees and shiny things captured a lot of our time, talent, and treasure. I deleted all of my social media accounts for most of the pandemic, so I missed a bunch of the online drama, but I was drawn back into social media for community and school event information, and I realized I didn't really miss that much. So this time has caused a great deal of sorrow for many from the virus, but far more have felt a mental sickness from the isolation. We're told that the world is changing, but it is the same world that it was before. Human nature did not change. A trend toward disorder and chaos is clearly happening, but this is not a new thing or even original, as there is nothing new under the sun. This has happened many times before. I think we're living in a time best described in the Book of Wisdom, Chapter 2. That's a good one to go crack open if you have a chance. These seemingly novel ideas pumped by the media are as old as time. They're new to us, but they're not new. The narrative around a post-Christian, post-American, post-9-11, post-colonial, post-2008, post-capitalist, post-Cold War, post-Trump, post-modern, post-truth, post-COVID, post-everything world, all of these are as credible as the sugary calories I get in my favorite post-cereal, which is no longer Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but Honey Bunches of Oats with Almonds. So today I find that the back of these cereal boxes has more reading depth than any of the major major news outlets. Honestly, at this point I grant professional wrestling a higher level of seriousness than the New York Times, CNN, or Fox News, because at least pro wrestlers have the courtesy to wink and admit they're pretending. The falseness of pro wrestling is obvious and therefore far more honest, which today gives these steroid and drug-fueled wrestlers a higher integrity than the smoke and mirrors surrounding the veiled ideologies disguised as news from our media companies. To see this madness in action, just log in to Facebook or Twitter and scroll through your friends' postings. The vociferous progressive and the angry conservative will sway like a reed to whatever is popular today. Remember Coney 2012? Remember Cecil the Lion? Remember the wet market? Remember flattening the curve? Remember that insulting tweet? Remember the thousand other daily crises between then and now? Look at today's headlines and you will see today's Cecil the Lion. Everything is a crisis. And here's the thing I've learned. When everything is a crisis, nothing is a crisis.
To illustrate what I mean by that, here's a real-world tale of what happens when everything is a crisis. A software company had a model of measuring the severity of customer problems, which went from 1 to 7, with severity 1 being the highest or the worst case for a customer. Severity 1 meant the system was down and the customer was losing money, and their software was to blame. For a long time, this model worked, until a series of especially vocal customers began to realize that if they lobbied to get every support issue elevated to a level 1, they received instant and premium support. The most talented troubleshooters would come running to their aid since the skilled employees were always in demand for difficult issues. Thus, the customers began ranting and raving about every case until they received the recognition and label of Severity 1 on most of their tickets. So these customers saw this as a good thing. Now what happened in reality is that more customers began to realize how to game the severity model, and soon many issues were in the high-priority houses-on-fire queue. So while customers imagined this was a good thing, the support staff that I was part of burned out and realized that if every incoming case was high-priority, then all the tickets were actually, actually normal-priority, regardless of the assigned severity. The skilled engineers began working longer hours and grew frustrated. And after enough time passed, they started to disappear. If every ticket requires all hands on deck, then eventually you run out of hands. It's like when a freshman keeps pulling the fire alarm in a college dormitory over and over, night after night. Eventually, people stop getting out of bed to go outside and discover they would rather die in the fire than waste their time freezing outside at 3 a.m. for no good reason. They're playing the odds that it's not that important. In the end, the support issue severity system became so meaningless that a higher level of zero was added. Yes, for real, we, we had to add a new level. A new status was invented quietly to address this problem. Within a year, the skilled employees started to leave the company looking for greener pastures where they were not running from one meaningless task to the next. Customers eventually realized that a severity zero was the secret internal status that they now needed. And believe it or not, the company added a negative status, severity of negative one, to hide yet another level for actual crisis tickets. As time went on, the product support grew lazy and cynical, and tickets lingered without anyone really caring, while customers continued to scream on the phone about their severity one or severity zero tickets that weren't getting addressed. So everyone suffered until the whole severity system had to be reordered when a new boss came in and shook up the whole severity triage, answering complaints from the engineers and customers and so on. It was kind of like Simba returning to the pride and replacing Scar. It was like Scar had been in charge for a long time and everything was just blah and flat and no one cared. The new boss, Simba, fought for the engineers and we all battled to reset the severity of tickets to their proper places. But the sad ending here is that this boss eventually left because in cleaning up, he stepped on a few toes of some hyenas, cynical engineers who enjoyed the status quo. Now, why would anyone prefer a bad system to a disciplined and logical system? Well, because when everything was a crisis, no one really had to do any work. It was a state of gridlock where engineers could complain about the state and then just go home at five o'clock. 
The result of everything is a crisis is a kind of despair or paralysis, which can even become comfortable in its dysfunction for those riding the current. In chasing every problem, no problem is addressed. In sounding the alarm, we become living examples of the boy who cried wolf. And I suspect the wolf is near, if not already here, but we stopped expecting him to ever appear. So this watering down of what the word crisis means will eventually make a real crisis strike us like lightning. I suspect it is only a high level of material comfort and extended time of peace and prosperity that could allow us all to have so much time and energy to spend online seeking a daily problem to get excited about. We are somewhere in the seven stages of empire, as after the fourth stage of affluence comes the age of intellect, followed by decadence, and soon afterward, decline and collapse. I'll let you decide which one we're at there. So this pandemic held this state of constant crisis in front of our eyes. And since we were all shut indoors and kept separate, we got to partake in it or observe it through our computer screens. Early on, I realized that I could react in one of two ways to the noise. I could embrace the cage match of fixing the world's problems by thumbing responses on my phone. Many seem to think this will bring about a utopia. Or I could turn the phone off and change myself. At least I could try. I'm not sure I can really change, but an effort can be made. This goes back to my use of the serenity prayer, that little prayer that is the great knife that can cut through issues and help discern which road to take. And as far as that utopia goes, I look forward to the incredible time ahead that the partisans are promising. But in the meantime, while I continue to witness the result and reality of original sin in every human being, including myself, I'll try to live for today with hope for the future. I'll try not to think about actual crises that could happen, such as, hmm, well, the launch of 10,000 nuclear warheads, which are aimed at every major city across the world, or maybe the possibility of a giant solar flare frying every electronic circuit on Earth, or the dollar being dumped as the world's reserve currency, creating exponential inflation overnight or drought and famine across world agriculture, or biological warfare that would make COVID look like a sniffle. So in this two-year pandemic, if you haven't made a change yet but have considered making one, or you want to make a change, this opening in time might have been the greatest opportunity of your lifetime. The question to ask yourself is this, did you waste this time? Did you let it slip by? Did you freak out over every 24-hour news cycle? Or did you turn off the TV? Did you put your phone down? Did you close your laptop? Or did you cling to those things every waking minute? I hope you didn't waste it, or that you don't waste what is left of it. There will never be a perfect time, but if you squander this time, these many months when the world slowed down, then the perfect time to change is now. The old Chinese proverb, holds true. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the second best time is today. And this isn't some new age idea. This is ancient and cross-cultural. But it comes with one warning. When you seize the day, make sure that you are seizing something worth reaching for.
when I think of the last years of my own life, I think of hiking experience where I've stopped to look at trees growing in strange places. Warning, warning, I'm switching metaphors now. Mixing metaphors, going into trees. So when I think of the last years of my life, I think of hiking experience where I've stopped to look at trees growing in strange places. On cliffs or rocky paths, tree roots will cling to impossibly small cracks or nooks or crannies. The tree itself twists and bends, growing sideways or curling toward a sunny spot. How these trees survive bewilders me. They seem to have nothing to hold on to, yet they live and grow. Some even appear to thrive, but the weight of the tree growing sideways will eventually fall due to its own weight fighting against gravity. They struggle, yet they live these full lives. With their improper footings and nutrients, they become stunted as the roots grope along cliff and rock edges in desperate search for water and minerals. The will to live, to survive, shows itself in the exposed roots. You can see this intense yearning to live in plants and animals everywhere you look in nature. This is never a question in nature. The will to survive and reproduce are the two driving forces for all living things, unquestioned among all species from largest to smallest. But with people, I often can't tell who is like the thriving tree on the craggy precipice, who is out of place, who is out of sorts, or who is growing sideways but seemingly fine. A person may appear to be thriving but have no footing, and rather than a physical search for sustenance, they engage in an unseen mental and spiritual search, only to have their roots grasp at rocks and sand that give no nutrition. They slowly starve, trying to draw life water from a swamp of politics or sports or liquor or possessions or 350 horsepower motors and boats, something like that. Others seem to have access to an untapped source that defies reason. It's like there is an unseen wellspring feeding the tap root of certain people. These strange trees or people are often the ones that make life or the woods or the cliffs beautiful. If every tree was in solid soil and growing straight and true, I'm not sure a mountain or woods hike would be as interesting. What's strange is you often see a tree that appears to be on solid footing, on good soil, but it's actually sick, while the strange tree on the cliff protrudes sideways from the rock, yet appears to be healthier than the tree in the rich soil. There are healthy-looking trees that are hollow inside due to beetles or disease, and you don't know it until the day a strong wind snaps the trunk in half or uproots the rotten base. The difference between trees and people is that we can change our footings. We can move, whereas a tree cannot. We can ask ourselves questions and react, and we can change. Here's a list of questions for asking yourself. How did you spend the first year of the pandemic? How did you spend the second year? What were you doing for the last 22 or 24 months? Did you grow or did you shrink? Did you get older or were you reborn? Did you scroll on your phone constantly? Did you discover the power of silence? Did you look inside and ask the real questions that you want to ask? Did you live online or in real life? Did you stew about politics? Did you rage quietly or publicly about how the virus was being handled? Did you swipe left or right all day? Did you get drunk a lot and laugh about it? 
there's a lot of questions of what, how do you spend your time? How do you choose each day? It's one of the biggest questions you can ask yourself all the time. And it's a good question to ask yourself before bed every night, as St. Ignatius did with the daily examine. It's something you can look up. It's a great way to evaluate. I mean, a lot of us might have wasted the greatest opportunity of our lifetime, and it might have been the best chance to change our footing, to stick with the trees here for a little bit. Well, when is the time to find true meaning? Now is a good time. The present seems like a good opportunity. Yesterday was better, but today is a good choice. You can try to get back to where you once had meaning, or if no such place exists, to find where that is. And if no place can be easily found, ask, seek, and knock. Pound on the doors of new places. Search for the right path and place to plant yourself. I would suggest you stop shopping at Amazon and start shopping where people meet in flesh and bone to talk about real things. And you'll not find that at the bar or the liquor store. You'll not find it at the mall or on an app. Millions have looked in those places and millions have never found it there. And you will not find it in yourself either, despite the convincing claims of New Age religion and modernism. The self is exactly the stumbling block that needs to be looked away from to experience a true change. There's something in you that aches to be aroused, and believe it or not, it's not sexual. There is an assumed obsession around that subject today, where happiness is thought by many to only come through something to do with body parts. This is probably the greatest distraction of the current age, maybe only matched by the desire for possessions and shiny things. But there is something deeper in the center of you that wants and demands something greater to believe in. I think an honest question to ask oneself who has become a cynic or doubter is this one. Why did you stop believing? What is the real reason? What crushed you? What stole it away? What political topic made you stop believing? What intellectual argument? What hypocrite turned your stomach? What jerk or cruel act twisted the good into something bent and broken? Why did you abandon belief? Was it something you did to someone else? There's, there's a reason it happens, and often multiple reasons. Something makes you doubt and something makes you stop believing, but it can happen so slowly and over such a long period of time that you don't even know it's happening. Or perhaps you've just arrived at a place called indifference. You stopped caring. Someone talked you out of it. You know, we can very easily be talked out of belief by clever argument if we're not careful. And there are many arguments that try to convert you away from your true belief. One interesting thing I've noticed is that anyone who insists that you should not talk about your religion to others is actually preaching their religion to you in that very ask of you. What they're saying is actually this. My belief is that you shouldn't speak about your belief. In other words, they are converting you to adopt their non-belief and indifference toward faith. Then out of concern for niceness and offending the other person, who, by the way, may have just effectively silenced you or even caused you to abandon your convictions, you grow quiet, as if your principles were mere suggestions for living instead of the bedrock of meaning in your life. 
The religion of the self is the de facto religion of this age, but this is an unsatisfying way to live. An age of doubt is here, temporarily, I think. If you don't realize this fact, then you've probably already been converted or are being converted to it or have allowed it to silence you. Many people are having their faith euthanized right now, slowly going to sleep in our culture that acts like carbon monoxide on our spiritual life. Every day you actively doubt is a day you aid and abet your own deconversion and willfully turn away from God. The great trick of this era is that government and corporations and schools and media companies pretend to act for our benefit instead of their own. We are instructed by all of these institutions that it is somehow intolerant or bigoted to proclaim the life, suffering, and death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in public. The irony is that all of these institutions will pass away before long, from the U.S. Senate to Amazon.com to the Teachers Union to the Washington Post to the Post Office to the office you work in. These are all temporary things, trying to silence something that can never be silenced no matter how much noise is made or how much smothering of people's faith is attempted. In reality, there is nothing intolerant about having convictions and principles to live by, and at least in America, this right to hold religious belief is protected. There are many places it's not. Nor is there anything bigoted about being open about your faith, as anyone who reads the four biographies of Jesus, also known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can discover rather easily if he or she decides to crack the cover of that book and stop accepting what the culture is telling. It's very hard to turn away from this culture. It's everywhere. It permeates everything. A society that pushes a religion of no religion doesn't like to hear anything about parables or miracles. And therefore today we are being told that the God of love is suddenly a God of hate. And this is not a failure to transmit on God's part. This is a failure to receive on our part. We only want a God that affirms what we desire. And that remains the case unless you experience the invasion of grace, as Bishop Barron calls it. The invasion of grace will hit you like a truck if you start asking, knocking, and asking for the Holy Spirit to come to you. In the idleness of the past years, in the pandemic, some larger questions of life must have jarred you from time to time. If these questions haven't sprung up, then you may just continue on the road of indifference that ends in the land of blah. And I don't want to be in that gray place. That road requires no action and no vigor and offers no real satisfaction. Unless the next TV show or case of beer or oversized meal or one-night hookup can somehow fulfill the deepest concern inside you and me. Call me a skeptic. Many of us walked away from God for a reason, somewhere along the way, and there are many possible reasons. If the problem is intellectual, that God cannot be real, then there is reading and listening, as you've probably spent much more time reading and listen, listening to reasons not to believe and have never given the spiritual way a fighting chance. I've gone over my own struggle in detail in earlier chapters of this journey. Ideas and reason blocked me, as I wanted to learn everything, to know, to appear smart, appear wise, and most of all, consider myself above superstition and myth. 
which seemed like childish things, only to find out that to come back to it, to turn back, you have to do it like a child. But ideas that are blocking you are just one cause of a spiritual blindness. Often a human drives us away. Someone brashly shoves religion on us. Maybe that was it. They, well, if they did, they failed to deliver the message. A confluence of things drove me away. If, if it wasn't only ideas, there was other, something else. So you look at back and say, what caused me to fall away? What was it? Perhaps it was one of these things. Someone hurt your feelings. Something crushed you. Something distracted you. Someone annoyed you. Someone did something to someone else that you loved. What do all of these have in common? All of these are reasons, but they are about a person or a group of people. Notice that the problem in any one of those reasons was not God. The reason is always something else.